Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Riley Risto and Christopher Hurtado. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We are by no means experts in the topics we discuss. But what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Well, welcome back, everyone, for Latter-day Contemplation. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Riley Risto. And this week, we are going to talk about heaven and hell. We're here to talk about heaven and hell. Riley, I had a slice of heaven myself yesterday, spending some time with my family, with my own nuclear family and with my sister and her family at Huntington Beach. And I've been through some hell too. I know what that's like. Let's get into this. Yeah, and I love where you opened up with that, talking about an experience right now that you've had in the moment and and you related it to heaven. I mean, I'm with you. There's nothing like sitting on a beach reading a book, listening to crashing waves, go for a swim every once in a while, maybe catch a surf. That, that to me, is a little slice of heaven. And I think that's a good place to go to kind of open up this conversation on heaven and hell. So what, what are heaven and hell, really? I don't know. I was hoping you were going to tell me. I don't know. And, and I think that that's a good place to, to you know, insert this idea that, first of all, I'm not going to pretend I know what the heck heaven or hell are. And, you know, I desire to believe in, in some afterlife, that there's a continuance of my soul, and I want to investigate those ideas further and the implications for kind of our eternal destiny in light of a loving God and what he's told us about the eternal nature of our spirits. But man, I don't know anything about heaven and hell. So what, what, do, we, what do we want to talk about that's going to have any value for the listener here? And I just thought, there's, there's lessons we can learn and apply right now and try to make a heaven of our current circumstances as we're living in the moment right now. Yeah, we don't have to wait until after this life, whatever our afterlife is going to be like, whether heaven or hell. Although as Latter-day Saints, we don't really have a hell per se in our, in our theology. But then there is hell on earth and there, there can be heaven on earth. So yeah, let's talk about that. Well, I mean, you just referenced we don't have a hell in our theology, but, you know, if you read the King James Version of the Bible, there are multiple times when it says, when it quotes Jesus as saying that certain people here or there or doing this or that are destined for hell. So what does that mean? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Let's talk about that. What are the, what are the words that are translated uh, hell in the King James Bible? The first one that appears a few times is Gehenna. And Gehenna is this valley just east of Jerusalem. And it's this, Ge means uh, valley. Hinnon is the name of the valley. So Gehenna is the valley of Hinnon. And it's the, the garbage dump. It's Jerusalem's city dump, or it was at least at the, at the time of Christ. A place where there was always garbage burning. And where there were even, whether, you know, dogs or, um, you know, gnashing their teeth, fighting over scraps, uh, birds, this kind of thing. That's Gehenna. That's, that's one of the words that's translated as hell. 
And that place has a really checkered past, doesn't it? That valley. It's more than just a place where they burn the garbage. Historically, in the Old Testament, the Valley of Hinnon where is, is the place where children were sacrificed to the gods of Baal. That's not good. No, that was bad. <laughs> and in fact, there's, there's a couple of um, Old Testament Hebrew figures, Jewish figures, who are excoriated for participating in those rites of, it, it's called letting your children pass through the fire, which is kind of a euphemistic way of saying we're burning children alive to these gods, to appease these false gods. And in fact, Manasseh is one of the figures that is um, addressed as having participated in these rites of uh, having his own son pass through the fire. So really wicked, evil stuff that went on in that place. And I think that combined with the kind of sulfurous smell of burning garbage gives us that vision of, of fire and brimstone and gnashing of teeth and all the wicked stuff combined that happened there really made that a place just in terms of imagery that signified hell for Jesus. Yeah, you'd have to be in hell to burn children. Oh, yeah. So what would it mean when he would say that certain people were consigned to that kind of existence? Yeah, that's the question, right? Is what, what does that mean? Is Are they going to go to the Valley of Hinnon? Are they going to actually be burned alive? Or are they going to burn for all eternity? What does he mean? Yeah, are we talking about like a physical place that's out there? Or is he referencing a state of existence that they were all familiar with and none of them liked? As, as kind of a current state of consciousness for those who are stuck in a destructive pattern of thought or behavior. Yeah, I think on the one hand, when, when Jesus references this place, it's, it's something that's very uh, visceral that, they, that they've experienced visually and as you've indicated by smell, right? It's right there just outside the, the city walls uh, to the east of Jerusalem, this valley. And, and at the same time, it's a metaphor, right? It's a metaphor for an entire an internal state, a state of being in which, well, going back to the people who are burning children alive, you'd have to be in hell to burn children alive. This reminds me of a conversation from I had with Shiloh from a Facebook interaction he had with someone when when Shiloh was saying that nothing's, that, that you're already always worthy. I know that you and Shiloh talked about this in an episode before I came on the podcast on worth and worthiness, right? that you're always already worthy. And somebody pushed back saying, so if I, uh, he didn't say burn children, but he could have. He said, if I would rape and kill and what have you, then I'm already always worthy. And Shiloh and I talked about this and we just said, yeah, but you obviously don't realize you are. You're in hell. You're in a place where you don't know who you are and you don't know what you're doing or you wouldn't do it, right? Uh, as Socrates said, no one would actually harm their own soul knowingly. Like, do they really know? And this is a tough one because I remember the first time I came into contact with this idea was from a psychologist, a Brazilian psychologist friend of mine, saying that everyone's doing the best they can at any given time. And I thought, no, he's not, or no, she's not. I know he knows better. And the reality is, I mean, at least as I've come to understand it, people really don't know, not really. No one would really harm their own soul knowingly, but we do find ourselves because we're, because of our ignorance at times in hell right here on earth and and that's yeah that's a great point because um it, you know if you talk about hell in the context of the way Jesus we think did he's really pointing to a, a way of behavior or action that is out of congruence 
with what God desires for us, which is, you know, always in our best interest. And so when we're not operating or acting in that congruence or in that unity with what God would desire for us as our highest ideal or in our even our innate character as children of God, then we're, you know, we're not experiencing our true nature. And so we're actually kind of on the opposite side of that spectrum, which is represented by this hell. Now, you brought up Socrates, and Socrates had some interesting thoughts about what happens to the soul after death. And he said either we live on and we end up conversing with our loved ones and families, or it's just a deep, dreamless sleep. And that kind of comports pretty well with what the Jews, the ancient Jews, thought about hell. Their word for hell is Sheol. Do you know what Sheol means or represents, Christopher? Sheol is a place like Hades in Greek mythology. So it's this underworld, right? And it's a perfect segue out of hell for us, if, if you're ready. I'm not trying to hurry us. But first, let's go down into it, right? Sheol, like, like Hades, is a place where, where, the, where people go after they die, but not in, there's not a sense really of an afterlife of the soul. That doesn't show up until the time of the Pharisees, which is the, pretty much the time of Christ that there's an, the, the idea of an afterlife of the soul. As Latter-day Saints, we read that into the text of the Old Testament. But for the Jews, they're not seeing that. They did see a place like Hades, uh, called Sheol, where you could go down and where the dead were more in a bodily existence. Um, yeah, their physical body, right? Their soul had already left that body. Exactly. And so you have this, you have in literature, many times, oftentimes, these ascent texts that we've talked about on this podcast where usually the preceding the ascent there's a descent right there's the descent the going down the katabasis and then the ascent the anabasis or the going up and so we see characters like odysseus in the odyssey uh, book 11 go down to hell and talk to his father or go down to hades i should say and talk to his father. We see the same thing in book six of the Aeneid with Aeneas going down to Hades and talking to his father. And that's preceding the the uh, going up, right? That there's this going down. Right. So, you know, the, the Jews do believe, for the most part, I, I know there was this, uh, seemed to be a, an argument amongst the, the Sadducees versus the Pharisees in terms of whether they believed in a resurrection or not. But I mean, for the most part, modern-day Jews believe in a resurrection and that the the soul will re-inhabit the, the body. But for the in the meantime, the body itself is in the grave or the pit or what they would just call death and hell. It's Sheol. It's the pit. It's underground, the underworld. And uh, it's they don't have a conception of it like maybe we might say traditional Christianity does of this like everlasting burning of the flesh and you know, weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. That's a conflation of terms that goes along with kind of the Gehenna uh, imagery that we talked about. So just to kind of set some of that stuff aside and say that the soul or spirit was equated with kind of the breath of life or the Ruach. And as soon as that Ruach left the body, that was kind of it for the body. And the soul would just kind of exist in this, uh, I don't want to call it a purgatory, but in waiting, in a waiting period prior to re-inhabiting the body at the resurrection. So in terms of heaven now, uh, you mentioned the anabasis, the, the ascension. Yeah, let's get out of here. Uh, we've, enough of hell. Get out of hell? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's get the hell out of here. 
Um, you know, and LDS theology is really interesting in this respect because it's really set up like an ascension, isn't it? I mean, you've got levels of heaven. And of course, this is referenced as well, kind of more vaguely in the New Testament with Paul and and whatnot, but um, and even with Jacob's ladder, for instance, as as that ascension. Um, but amongst Christians, it seems to me that it's it's sort of a unique theology, wouldn't you say? Yeah, well, there's we've talked about Plotinus uh, here on the podcast too, right? And what was it, classical contemplation? That I think that was the name of the episode, and. You know, there there is Plotinus. There are his ideas about uh, ascending to the divine, and yet they are. He's thought to have been a, uh, perhaps a, a an elapsed Christian. So, did his ideas influence Christianity? Well, yes, they did. Christianity, Islam, Judaism. That's we can say yes to that. But were they originally Christian ideas in some sense? He's an elapsed Christian, we believe. At least he may have been. So, what's the big picture about? LDS heaven. Like, what? What's the big picture? Who ends up there? Um, again, big picture, not breaking it all down yet. But who who goes to heaven, and what do they have to do to earn that? Well, you know, one of the things that's that stands out uh, in in Latter Day Saint theology is that the answer is almost everybody. There's no hell. There is outer darkness, whatever that means. We'll have to add that to the list with heaven and hell, and maybe talk about that. But what we have is that. Unless you end up in outer darkness, you're ending up in some degree of glory. There was a, a guy that walked up to my daughter in Hawaii on the beach, and she just told me this story. She left for Hawaii on uh, Sunday, I think. Um, just, yeah, no, day before. Anyway, um, took her back to the airport, and she flew back to Hawaii. But uh, on the way, she was telling me about this guy that just walked up to her randomly on the beach, and he happened to be an LDS guy. And he said, hey, um, do you guys care if I share a message with you? And they're like, sure, <laughs> not knowing what his motives were or who he was. And he, he just said, you know, I just think it's wonderful that you're out here enjoying life in Hawaii. And this was on a Sunday, by the way. And uh, he complimented them on um, just their indulgence in the beauty of life. And, they, and you know, he was a very nice guy, but they were a little suspicious, like, what's going on? He's like, I just want to share with you that billions of people are saved, billions and he, and he used that kind of phraseology, and they're like, okay, cool. And he's like, no, I'm serious. Listen. And he said, are you guys LDS, by the way? Because, you know, they're in Laie or close to it. They're um, where BYU-Hawaii is. And I, I think he just wanted to approach them with a message that as LDS girls, they, they're not used to hearing, you know, sitting on a beach on a Sunday, um, you know, in bikinis. My, my daughter has a couple small tattoos on her knee and a nose ring. She's a little bit of a rebel, but she's awesome. Anyway, I think he just wanted to reassure them that, you know, you guys are, you guys are good. You're good people. And it's okay what you're doing here. And it really, obviously it resonated with them because kids these days, if they stay faithful within the church, they're going to hear this probably more often than they should, that there's all kinds of restrictions and all kinds of things that make them feel terrible and and the guilt and shame kind of packs up on him. And this guy came at him with a different message. And he said, if you guys ever want to join me, we have a big dinner at my house on Sunday. There's dozens of people there. And, and true enough, you know, he, he is a, he's a ward mission leader and he attracts dozens of kids in that area. And he feeds them dinner and he preaches them a gospel message on a Sunday when maybe they would have been engaged in something else. And anyway, his approach just resonated with my daughter and these, these friends of hers. 
And the main crux of his message is, is that you're all saved. You're all going to heaven. Um, how do we differentiate that from kind of like a, uh, a doctrine of Nehor, if you want to take a Book of Mormon example? Well, first, let me say, if, if we go back to the beginning, uh, my opening line was, I experienced a piece of heaven yesterday. Uh, well, it was the day before yesterday, actually, and at uh, Huntington Beach with my family. And so your 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 daughter's in the same place, right? Having uh, this experience of of a piece of heaven on Earth, maybe even more so in Hawaii than in uh, Huntington Beach, California. And then this guy comes along with this message of hope. On top of that, what a beautiful message! That's the gospel message, right? A message a message of hope. And and it's the message I think that this generation needs to hear. It's the message that resonates with them. I'm not sure that the that the idea of Nehor that you're bringing up is the message that's going to resonate with them. Why don't you go into that a little bit and tell us what you mean? Well, you know, in the Book of Mormon, you got this guy Nehor that basically says everyone is saved. It's a very universalist message, right? Um, And he's doing it from the perspective of, you know, there's no sin. It doesn't matter. Everyone's saved. Everyone's going to heaven type thing. So how do you distinguish that from... And, you know, Amulek fought against that kind of message, right? He's like, no, you're wrong. And, you know, and Amulek is made out to be kind of the hero of that story. But it's interesting to me that our theology has become somewhat of a compromise between the uh, maybe kind of a consequentialist view of heaven versus the universalist view of heaven. And in my estimation, universalism has won within the church. And you see that somewhat codified or encoded within Doctrine and Covenants in this history of how we came to understand the degrees of glory and who gets saved and what needs to be done and all that stuff. It's a very interesting history there. So one of the things I personally love about LDS theology is this concept that's now encoded within Doctrine and Covenants that nearly everyone makes it into heaven. And by nearly everyone, I mean pretty much everybody with very few exceptions. Even the worst people you know will have an eternal inheritance of glory if they desire it, or if they even just don't deny what they see straight on, like that that sin against the Holy Ghost, if, if you will. If they see the truth laid out right in front of them, all they have to do is acknowledge it and desire it. And who's not going to want that? So few, right? That is a pretty universal salvation. Okay, so I have to admit, I yeah, I have to admit I didn't, really know what you meant by the doctrine of Nihor. I have trouble with names. So yeah, now that you put it that way, it's a really good question you bring up, Riley, because we have to distinguish between, or do we, right? So we have to we have to at least go into this. We have to talk about what we're saying here. Are we saying everyone's saved means it doesn't matter that you sin, or everyone's saved regardless of whether you sin because Jesus has paid the price for our sins? Right, so is the do we believe Christ when Christ says, pretty much to everyone he ever talks to, your sins are forgiven? Right. Yeah, and and that's the thing, right? So I think the way that we've tried to reconcile this idea that uh, is fought against by Amulek in the Book of Mormon with Nehor is that we've we've created these levels. And yeah, everyone's going to be saved, but you really don't want to be saved in that lowest of low kingdoms, even though the glory of that is beyond all comprehension. 
Yeah, well, now comes our striving for for progress, which again is is part of our theology that we progress eternally. But I'm reminded of last week's episode with Jana Spangler, and we were talking about sort of how we always feel like we have to be doing something and working on something, and that that progress means that somehow we need to strive for that next level. Whereas Jana was saying, what we really need to do is just be fully present to the level we're in, wherever we are to realize that we're right where we need to be, and that in being fully present in that awareness, in that level, in that place, that's how we actually ascend to another level. Yeah, I love that, because you you only ascend after you do something really well. So we have to kind of be where we're at and do it really well. And the natural progression from that is taking us into another level. I was reminded of this principle this morning, perhaps because I reread the Bhagavad Gita again last night. Um, I was sitting at my desk, taking my blood pressure as one of the things on my on my morning routine. You know, something to something that I do every day, and I found myself not present to what I was doing, thinking about the next thing I was going to do, and I had to tell myself, "Dude, just relax, be present." do this, right? Right now you're you're measuring your blood pressure and that's all there is. And the next thing comes after that. But first, be present to what you're actually doing and where, where you actually are now. And that's so difficult. We live in a society where we're constantly hit with a new notification every 30 seconds, right? And so it's very easy for us to get distracted out of whatever it is we're doing and pulled into something else. And usually that something else is less important, but we've we've become like Pavlov's dogs. You know, we just immediately respond to these stimuli that hit us every 30 seconds or minute or whatever. So it's difficult to stay focused. So in order to be able to progress from one task to another or one state of consciousness to another, we actually have to do one thing well first. It's line upon line. Yeah, and it's ironic because for me in, in my story, because part of what I'm supposed to be doing while I'm take at least this is what I've decided to do is since I have to sit still anyway for a few minutes, I'm meditating. And so in, in that, in that meditation, I was aware, I became aware that I wasn't being present. And that, that's a powerful moment of, you know, that's another question we dealt with last time uh, on the podcast with Janice Bangler, this idea of the question of where are you, of knowing where you are. Just being aware of that is a good place to start, right? And so are you in hell? Are you in heaven? If you were in heaven, would you notice? Sometimes these things sort of, they sort of show up. You know, if I'm on the beach and the kids are there with their cousins and I'm with my sister and we're talking and and the weather is nice and it's just so beautiful and, and, and lovely in every way, and you think, this is heaven, at other times, I may be in heaven and not realize it, right? Can, so the question that comes to my mind is, can I actually choose that in any, in any moment, at any time, in any place, and not have it have to impress itself upon me, but for me to choose it? And if I'm in hell, same thing. Can, do I, am I aware of it? Do I know I'm in hell? Can I do something to get myself out? Those are the questions that come to my mind. Those are excellent, and I think that's really where contemplation comes into this discussion and how we might be able to differentiate from the doctrine of Nihor and 
this gradual ascension or progression through degrees of glory is that those who are in their moment are aware of it, are recognizing the things that are happening happening to and with them and because of them are those who can then make steps in any direction. But if you are closed off to your awareness of where you're at in this moment and you're just uh, a victim of the circumstances surrounding you and you're not an agent, maybe that's the difference. Yeah, you know, what you said speaks very powerfully to me. I remember listening to a a brief conversation between a sheikh uh, who is a let's say the equivalent of an elder, not in the sense of the office of the priesthood, but someone who is uh, sheikh actually means elder in the Islamic tradition. And he was having a conversation with some some secular humanists that, uh, that were in the same mosque where he was touring in Morocco, and they're having a conversation. And uh, Sheikh Hamza, he says to the people he's talking to that he doesn't think that freedom is being able to do whatever you want. That's not what freedom means, he says. And we this is very much the case uh, according to the Book of Mormon, right? It's not just about being able to do whatever you want. He says freedom is about being able to actually choose. And so what he wants to do with this conversation in today's context, fast forward from Book of Mormon times to today, the world that you're talking about, the world that we live in, is to say for you to actually be able to choose means that you're not making the choice because you were you were propagandized right because someone advertised to you spent a lot of money uh, putting this choice in front of you as the most desirable choice uh, or and even using you know the best psychology and the best psychologists and and spare no expense to persuade you in, in some way or another to make a choice that's not if you choose in that way that's not freedom do you see what he's saying I do. Oh, that's awesome. And it speaks to that same distraction that is besetting us today, where, you know, a lot of people have spent a lot of money and done a lot of research into our responses and tapping into kind of like our, our, our brain responses, our chemical responses to stimuli. And when we just allow that stuff to happen to ourselves, in other words, we don't exercise any agency in that equation then we just become victims of our circumstances. And we, we just get tossed with every wind to and fro, you know? We can't ever be in a moment and complete tasks or finish thoughts or conversations even because we're constantly getting pulled aside. Yeah, we don't look like we're free in those moments, do we? We're not really at choice. We're, as, we're as, as you said, victims of circumstances, or at least we're at the effect of things rather than at the cause of things. So I want to relate these degrees of glory more to like states of consciousness, where rather than trying to look far into the future for something that happens after we die, thinking about how we might be active agents in the process of progression you know, while we're here in this moment, how do we progress from one state of consciousness to another, whether that you label those telestial, terrestrial, celestial, or something else? How might we engender within ourselves a celestial mindset while we're alive right now? 
Well, first of all, this certainly is the time and the place to begin. As the ancients taught, the present alone is our happiness. You know, Joseph Smith said that that the end of our life, that the whole purpose or telos of our life is to be happy and that that would be what would happen in the end if we would follow the path that leads to that happiness, which is the gospel path, right? The, the covenant path, let's say, to put it in today's parlance. But that there's nothing there that says that that has to happen after this life. That's not what he said. I, I don't even think that's what's intended. No, no, I don't think so either. And I'm reminded too, Riley, of an experience that my mother's best friend had right after my mother passed. My mother's best friend called me and said, your mother appeared to me in a dream last night. She was dressed all in white, and she said, it's all about happiness. It's all about happiness. Now, again, this appears to be uh, from beyond the veil, and maybe you could take away the message that beyond the veil is all about happiness, but that, again, is not what she said. This is a perfect lead-in, Christopher, if you don't mind me going here. You, you recommended a book to me. I guess it's probably been... I don't know, nine months or so ago by Sultan Abdul Hamid called The Quran and the Life of Excellence. And I, I pulled this one out because I wanted to, I wanted to get some uh, perspectives outside of our faith. And we've done that a little bit with you know, Jewish thought in terms of hell. But here's, here's the thought from the Islamic perspective of what paradise is all about. This is from Surah 13, Ayah 35, and it says, The parable of the paradise promised to those who are conscious of God is that of a garden. It is watered by running streams. Eternal are its fruits, and eternal are its shades. So that's the Ayah right there. But he goes into a little bit of a exegesis about what he thinks that means. And I want to read a couple of his paragraphs here because I think it's completely apropos to what you're saying. It is a common mistake by lay people and theologians alike to forget that descriptions of heaven and hell are parables. There have been books and essays through history with speculations on the physical nature of paradise, where it could be located, whether it is on the seventh heaven, if it is in our solar system or outside, etc. A major pitfall of such thinking is that it leads to the belief that you can get there only after you die, that you have to be physically transported there. You are here now. And you have to go to this place out of this world. This has led many to believe that it is natural to be miserable in this life because happiness is possible only after you leave the earth. This is the mindset of fatalism. It results in laziness, inaction, poverty, and misery, a life like hell on the earth. The parable of the paradise promised to those who are conscious of God is that of a garden. You know, the first thing that comes to my mind uh, listening to that, Riley, is the question of where is it as opposed to where am I? We were just talking about the question, where am I? And when we get into these conversations about heaven and hell, typically, as the author here is pointing out, we're talking about where is it? And that's a really different question, isn't it? And, and it shows, you know, that, that's something that's outside of ourselves and it's not, it's not within our sphere. Look, first of all, we don't know where it is, if it is, right? And, Secondly, it's just not our, it's not within our sphere of concern or influence, right? We can't do anything about whether or where it is. What we can do is be aware of where we are. Well, it's funny. I, I, 
I watched, I don't know how I came onto this, but I, uh, I saw that caricature from The Godmakers, which is kind of like that anti-Mormon film from the 1970s. And part of that described heaven as this place where God is. And they were very explicit about it, extremely literal, maybe more so than Mormons are. And they're like, yeah, God exists on this planet called Kolob. And, you know, if we're going to go to heaven, then we we somehow travel through space to Kolob and, and inherit that kingdom with God. And it, it was just such a silly caricature. But I was just thinking to myself, like, okay, it sounded silly, but so often we think heaven is out there. And in reality, heaven is here. I mean, e- even within our own theology, the earth will be celestialized and receive its paradisiacal glory. We're here now on earth. This is our heaven. And so either making the most of it or being aware and open and accepting of what is already before us can put us in that mindset or state of consciousness that would represent heaven in the highest degree. Yeah, or if it's not our heaven, it's up to us to make it our heaven. One of my favorite quotes from Joseph Smith is the one where he says that, that I can't remember exactly the context, something like, hey, look, if we're wrong about all this, the restoration, right, and we go to hell, then we'll turn the devil out and make a heaven of it. <laughs> it's like the the gospel that he's uh that he's bringing you know back the, the which again is good news right the gospel is good news is there's no losing it's win win right no matter what if we go to hell we'll turn the devil out and make a heaven of it it's up to us it's up to us to build zion it's up to us to to choose to be in heaven or to make this to make this a heaven yeah, and we shouldn't make what is recorded in Scripture out to be the end-all, be-all. In fact, right after 76, the vision, DNC 76 was recorded, Joseph Smith said of that vision, I could explain an hundredfold more than I ever have of the glories of the kingdoms manifested to me in that vision, were I permitted, and were the people prepared to receive them. And so I just think we ought to be careful in assuming that it's this little neat box, you know, in, in DNC 76, you know, where you have telestial, terrestrial, celestial, and those who go to telestial are these people, and it's made up of this, and the terrestrial people are these, and, uh, you know, there's more to this story, and a hundredfold more. Yeah, and let's not forget that Joseph Smith also said that if, if he would tell us, you know, and he said this to his closest companions, that if he would have told them everything he knew, they would have sought his life. The Prophet Muhammad said the same thing to his closest companions. If I told you everything I know, you'd want to kill me. And so, not so. So for those who for those who might uh, not like what we're saying here, first of all, we don't know what we're talking about. We we started there. Secondly, neither do you, right? We don't not even from the scriptures because Joseph Smith did not tell us. That's a really good point, Riley. Well, he also said the mysteries of the kingdom surpass all understanding. They are only to be seen and understood by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so as much as we want to think that these things can just be laid out again in a neat little um, outline within Scripture and that we just understand and immediately conform, it's, it's just not like that. There's a whole lot more to this story. And to to kind of illustrate this point, I wanted to point out a little bit about the chronology of our understanding, the LDS theology of, uh, of kingdoms of glory, because DNC 76 was actually revealed in 1829. 
And again, we kind of look to that section and we say, oh, there it is. There's the big explanation of of the plan of salvation and all the degrees of glory laid out in their, in their completion. But um, there's another revelation given the next year, and that's contained in another section of DNC in 137. And it's in that further revelation in 137 where he, where Joseph Smith sees his brother Alvin in the celestial kingdom. Well, of course, Alvin died before all this restoration stuff happened. And yet he was in the celestial kingdom. Well, in DNC 76, it's very clear that the unbaptized, they're not in the celestial kingdom. So how's Alvin there? And so as Joseph Smith is pondering this, this, this universal truth that is revealed to him in vision that God saves all of his children, very universalist message. As he's pondering that message, he is given this revelation of how to accommodate the salvation of all God's children. And so we start doing proxy baptisms. And that, that's, you know, a few years later in 1840 when that began. But the fact that he's able to see his older deceased brother in the celestial kingdom before proxy baptisms had even consummated is an indication that in most cases, when we're talking about heaven, we're trying to conform our ideas of what we think heaven is to God's plan for us. And we're not there yet. And you said something important and that needs to be reiterated, reiterated, and, and that is that it's not that God doesn't want all his children to return to him, but that we need to make more room in our own theology for that reality. We need to conform to God's reality. I love that. Did I say that? Well, you kind of gave the impression that we ought not to, you know, outpace ourselves. Yeah. And and that, uh, you know, we, we can only take things a step at a time, and that's totally true. But in, in, in saying that, by acknowledging that, we shouldn't assume that we have all the truth, just for that reason. No, but what we can do, we don't have all the truth, but we can gain it, right? We do believe that we can learn the truth, that we can learn all things, but line upon line, precept upon precept. Joseph Smith didn't tell us everything that he learned from God, and yet he opened up the way for us. He showed us the way by his example, so by, by example and by precept, but he taught us that we can seek to know these things for ourselves. We can gain access through our own experience of God, our own experience of heaven on earth, a, a vision of the celestial kingdom even, as, as Joseph Smith had, where we might see who knows who there, who we thought who couldn't be there, right? Or what, what, who knows what that we thought wasn't possible realized and have that realization for ourselves through our own experience of God. And that starts with, with uh, as you know, that starts with letting go of our preconceived notions of having a grasp on all of this and being present to the reality that we don't and asking. Ask and you shall receive. That's something that we've spent quite a bit of time on in the last few episodes is that usefulness or utility of questions and doubts and how important it is not to adopt the idea that we know it all. And specifically today, where we've got 200 years of LDS theological history 
in the rearview mirror, we, we just tend to think we have the fullness, <laughs> the fullness of the knowledge, the fullness of the doctrine, the fullness of the theology and the truth, all of that stuff. And we don't. The restoration is unfolding. It's ongoing, as President Nelson likes to say. And if, if Joseph Smith can say that he hasn't explained, you know, one one hundredth of the truth that he's seen, we just have to take him at his word and say there's more to this story. But the second we make ourselves certain of all those points of doctrine, then we've closed off the possibilities. Yeah, Riley, I want to go back to something you said earlier. You said heaven is not out there somewhere, that it's right here. And I immediately went to, oh, it's within us like the kingdom of God, right? The kingdom of God is within us, said Jesus. And you actually went to that the earth would be renewed and receive its paradisiacal glory. And I believe that's true. And yet there's still this idea that Jesus is communicating when he says the kingdom of God is within you. So that's another way, that's another sense in which it's not out there, it's in here. Heaven is within me. The kingdom of God is within me, and hell is within me too. It's all in there together. And what am I present to is the question. Where am I? Yeah, I love that. And I, I would actually, I would in agreeing with that, I would create space for the possibility that this renewal of the earth is both literal and metaphorical, and that the kingdom within us is both literal and metaphorical. There's space for both. And I don't think one is wrong and one is right. Um, they could both be right. So in the metaphorical sense of that being true would be our state of consciousness, our, our relationship with God on a, on a very personal basis. And so we can make all these attempts to systematize and make models out of what heaven might look like, like or degrees of glory, but really understanding how we interact with God might do more to move us through those states of consciousness or degrees of consciousness, if we want to relate them to glories, than, um, than trying to take this literal view of things. So, for instance, in order to get into that first level of the celestial kingdom, what's required? Baptism. Well, what does baptism represent at the metaphoric level? Obviously, there's a very important physical ordinance that's associated with baptism, but what, what does baptism represent? Well, you know, this is something we've talked about too, right? The, the, the baptism, baptism is a symbol of death and rebirth, right? Of going down into, into the waters of chaos out of which the world, which is the order uh, that we call creation, was created and coming out a new creature, a new creation, right? There's that. So in relating that to perhaps entrance into this first level of the celestial kingdom, which is, you know, eternal uh, uh, glory, you know, how does that, how does that connect? Well, baptism being a death and a rebirth means, okay, if we're, if we're really going to be celestialized and try to unite with God and be in his presence, as is described in DNC 76, for instance, and receive all that the Father hath, First, we have to be willing to die to ourselves and be reborn in, in a vision of you know, who we are as children of God. There's a metaphorical approach to all this as well. 
Yeah, and you know, this is a something else we've talked about that relates to this is this is a going down, right? Baptism means going down into the waters of baptism, into that chaos. And so this is the katabasis, going back to the beginning of the podcast, this is that katabasis that precedes the anabasis. The first step is going down. Before we can ascend, we must descend into the waters of baptism. We must descend into chaos and be reordered. We must go from order to disorder to reorder, something like that, right? As uh, as as Richard Rohr has written and and Janice Spangler mentioned on the last time we on the last episode, and you know we talked about this with Travis too. I'm reminded of when we interviewed Travis, and I guess it was was it classical contemplation? I think it was classical com- contemplation. We talked about the idea that the missionaries they share the the plan of salvation in a straight line. Whereas Travis said he didn't like that because it, it really is, you actually come down and you go back up. So you have, again, that uh, that katabasis, which is the coming down to the earth from the higher realm and then returning again to that realm with God. So I think that there's that metaphorical aspect, but then the literal aspect is by utilizing the covenants that we're told help us get into the celestial kingdom and magnifying those there's actually a very in-the-moment present benefit to some of those as well. Like, again, we're talking about baptism and this viewpoint of dying as to our ego self and being reborn in the image of our Savior, or repentance, for instance, being a fresh view about God, ourselves, and the world, and how helpful it is to have a repentant soul on a daily basis. These are very literal benefits that we um, that accrue to us when we live a covenant lifestyle. Yeah, and yet to to really benefit fully, we have to actually take that, right? We have to take that benefit for ourselves. So this isn't to say don't go on to the next step along the covenant path. There there is another step after baptism. However, what I do want to say is be fully present to the step you've already taken. This is back to what we said earlier, right? We have to be where we are to ascend to really ascend, because we can go to the next level and we can keep going to the next, when I say next level, I mean we can go to the next covenant and on to the next covenant and the next covenant. And if we're not fully present to and not fully benefiting from these covenants by actually fully understanding and realizing them in our lives, then we're not really making the progress that we may think we're making. We're missing out, right? There's a sense in which we haven't really claimed all that is ours by virtue of partake, by virtue of making those covenants, we're not actually partaking of the fullness of what those covenants have to offer. Yeah, I don't think we're internalizing the full meaning and breadth of repentance and um, baptism if we make of them an event. They're not a one-time event. Baptism should be a process. Repentance should be a process. Atonement should be a process. All of these things, sealing with your spouse, is not an event. It's a process. So that's why that phrase enduring to the end attached to any of that stuff is so important. Um, it's not a, it's not about, you know, never having faltered in your faith or having doubts or kind of falling away for a moment. It's really about internalizing the covenants we make as part of our daily walk. Yeah, and we can see the wisdom of the sacrament, of, of, of the weekly renewal of the covenant. There's that idea of the myth of the eternal return, as Eliada put it in his book, the myth of the eternal return, cosmos and history, that these sacred events 
they are in some sense these these moments, these these archetypal moments that we go through, right? Each covenant that we make, and yet each one of them is supposed to, in some sense, bring us out of a timeline into an eternal return, into that life is one eternal round, right? That that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that it's all one eternal round. Just like the trump that's mentioned so much in sections 30 through 36 is a symbol of the end of the world, as we see in Revelation, as you see in Haldane blowing that trumpet in, in Norse mythology. It's at the same time a symbol of resurrection, and you can actually see that too in the in the in the lily and the the white lily that we think of as the Easter lily, even though lilies includes so many flowers and even onions. There's that Easter lily that actually looks like a trump, and so it's a symbol of the end. And at the same time, it's a symbol of the beginning. The end and the beginning are opposites that are united, right? They're 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 a pair of opposites. They're pairs of opposites that we bring together. This is like the Jungian stuff, right? The, the bringing together the pairs of opposites, um, the conjunction of opposites, right? So we bring these opposites together in a mystery that is called the, the mystery of conjunction, the mysterium conjunctionis, as the alchemists called it. And again, we've talked about this at length in our episodes on alchemy with Morgan Aldous. I think we've managed to reference every guest we've ever had in this episode. Maybe, yeah. We, we did. We got Shiloh, we got Jana, we got Morgan, we got uh, uh, Travis. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of context here, right? And so it, it may be helpful for the listener to refer back to some of those episodes to go into, you know, to go deeper into some of these topics. In that spirit, I'm, I kind of want to end the same way we began. In the beginning of the episode, I said, we're not going to pretend we know anything about heaven and hell degrees of glory, whatever. We desire to believe and investigate further the implications of our eternal destiny in light of a, a God who loves us. So to end, I kind of want to express the same sentiment, but kind of leave with a little bit of a question. So this is a quote from one of my favorite UB40 songs. It's called Higher Ground. And and the um, the chorus says, every hour of every day, I'm learning more. The more I learn, the less I know about before. The less I know the more I want to look around, digging deep for clues on higher ground. So what does the higher ground represent for you, Christopher? There's so much to unpack in those lyrics that, you know, the poets really have a way, don't they, with words in a way, and they have a way of expressing the deepest, profoundest truths, right? The most profound truths. And, and that's why, by the way, a lot of the Bible is in poetry, right? And so we try to take these things so literally. This is the mistake of the Reformation is to is to take things literally. You know, have the printing press now. We can put the words out there before the printing press. Not only did the people not have scriptures to read, but they couldn't read anyway. And they couldn't read because they had nothing to read. So it's, you know, which is it? Is it that they had nothing to read or is it that they couldn't read? And so they took this, the scriptures more symbolically. They understood the poetry as it was meant to be understood metaphorically, right? The, the poet gives us metaphors. They speak directly to our emotions. They're not propositional. And so that's the feeling I get here too, is that there's, there's this endless, there's this eternal becoming, and it's always present. You can hear the, the circularity of it 
of the movement of it and the poetry of the lyrics you shared. I love it. And for me, it's an invitation. You know, when we receive Doctrine and Covenants or the Book of Mormon and we go through it and read it and we just absorb it as straight doctrine without um, looking at it through the lens of an invitation, then we're missing out on everything it has to offer. And that's, I think that's true for any scripture, which is why I'm a big fan of Lectio Divina as my preferred method of investigation. And that's, that's essentially to isolate very small sections of scripture, sometimes only a word or, or a verse, and just let the Spirit take me on a deep dive into what that is there to teach me, what's present for me in that, um, that sentence or that verse. And for me, when I read this, this lyric from UB40, and it finishes with digging deep for clues on higher ground, we tend to, as Latter-day Saints, think of ourselves as being situated on doctrinal higher ground. We have more of the truth. We have a fullness, in fact, right? We have a fullness of truth. And so we're sitting on this higher ground. But if we don't take the opportunity and the invitation to dig deep in that ground that we're standing on for clues as to what is being intimated by the Lord in these revelations, then we're just wasting that higher ground. You know, we're, sit- we're standing on a hill of sand instead of a firm foundation. I, I just think there's a lot of, yeah, there's just a lot of opportunity for us that, you know, perhaps we're letting slip by. Yeah, and another image the poet presents us in those lyrics is the idea that we're up on higher ground, and yet we're digging down. So we're up and we're down at the same time. There's another opportunity for a conjunction of opposites. It's a pretty good metaphor, up and down for heaven and hell. So maybe that's a good place for us to end. Is there anything else you wanted to uh, add to this conversation, Christopher? Nothing other than let us accept the invitation that, that the angels, that the prophets, that the poets, even UB40 has given us to continue to search, to seek that we may find. And I suspect that we'll find at the end of all our seeking that we're right back where we started at the beginning with God. And that he's always been there, waiting for us to fully realize that, to become fully present to his presence. For Latter-day Contemplation, this is Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Riley Riston. Have a great week. Mm-hmm.